0: Good morning. Let's go ahead and get started this morning. If I could get your attention, Uh, make sure that you grab a bulletin. There's some things uh, involving Christmas that are are coming up, and I just encourage you. One one thing that I'll just highlight this week is that we're going to have a day, uh, an evening set aside to come together and help put up the decorations for Christmas. Uh, Bethany Roberts is kind of heading that up this year, but she could definitely use our help. It takes a lot of work to get all those things down and hang them up. Uh, It'd take one person several hours to do that, but if we can get a lot of people, we can get it done in in an hour or so. So uh, just keep that in mind. Uh, It's this Tuesday, right? This Tuesday at 630. If you're able to help, please meet us here at at the church. Also, we've got our holiday meal and our our Next Generation Christmas program coming up. So like I said, just just grab a bulletin and and keep up to date with that. this morning, let me let's go ahead and turn to Psalm 32 for our scripture reading. Psalm 34, rather. Psalm 34. We're going to begin reading this morning at verse 17. Psalm 34, verse 17. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. I want to, as we pray this morning, I want us to remember um, George Gilland and his family. His mother is uh, not doing very well at all. In fact, they, they've called the family in, and I don't have all the details, but it seems like it, it may not be long uh, for her, and uh, both her and, and George's dad have had a lot of health problems, so I want us to pray this morning for George and for Randa and Tyler uh, of course, Tyler just lost his, his father not too long ago. And so this is another uh, p- potential loss here for them. So just, I, I like what this verse says, that the Lord is near to the broken heart hearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Um, we've had others. Sarah just lost her dad recently. Uh, and this is a particularly hard time. Some people have lost people in the past, but when the holidays come around, it's, it's one of those times where you begin to remember those who have passed away. And I, I love this passage because it says the Lord is near to people who are brokenhearted. So we just want to remember those people this, this time of year and pray that God would, would be with them, that he would comfort them and bless them. So pray with me this morning. Our heavenly father, we come to you this morning and we are grateful that you are not a God who is distant, who we do not know, who we do not experience, who is not near us, but, but you are a God. Who is near us, who comes to us in, in our need, in our trials, in our difficulty. We think, and and, and as we get ready to celebrate this time of year, that the coming of your son, Emmanuel, God with us, that Lord, this is the, the greatest example of that. How you come to us in our need, and you sent your son to us to redeem us and to save us. And we we praise you for that. We want to lift up George this morning and his mother, uh, Geneva, and Tyler and Randa, and all the family that's involved uh, with this. We just pray that your blessing would be on them. We pray that, that you would reveal yourself to them, that, that they would know you, the, the God who is present, the God who is near to the brokenhearted. I pray that you would be with them in a unique and a special way, that your grace and your blessing would be upon them, in this hour and in this time, Lord, so often we think about tragedies and we think about dealing with the loss of loved ones and we, we, we can't imagine how we could go through something like that, but we know it's by your grace and we pray for that grace for George and his family this morning. We ask for your blessing on this service this morning. We pray that you uh, would be with us, that your blessing would be upon the preaching of your word. We pray that as uh, Jared comes, that you'd fill him with your Holy Spirit. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear. Help us, Lord, put away the distractions and the things of this world. And we pray all of this in Jesus' name, amen. I have one more thing that we're doing kind of unique today. We recently had a, a membership class, uh, and that's just part of a process uh, to help people who are new to the church understand what our church is all about as they kind of come into membership here. And uh, and recently, Josh and Jamie Lomax. Went through that membership class and uh, we're going to have the Lord's Supper today. So we're not going to have a a point at the end of the service where they could come forward. So I'm going to ask them to come forward right now. They're coming for for membership and uh, Gary, I think, is going to come with them. Gary Gaynor has been a a member of our church for a long time, uh, but had had been away from the church for some time. And he's kind of coming back to just renew his commitment to our church here. And Josh and Jamie are coming uh, to, to join us in membership. And they have uh, two beautiful children, Cash and Carter Lomax. And so, uh, if you're a member here this morning and you want to welcome them into membership, would you just signal that right now by raising your right hand? All right, any opposed? All right, Jared opposed, but other than that, I think you all got through. So make sure we're not going to come up right now and welcome them in, but make sure that you welcome them into our church. Make sure that that they know that you love them, that you care for them, that you're going to be praying for them and and seeking to help them walk uh, with the Lord. So welcome to you all. We're we're so glad to have you all. We'll have our ushers come at this time. And uh, one of the things that you'll see in our bulletin as they're coming is uh, that There's some special giving opportunities during the month of December. Uh, several of the, the ministries that we have ongoing, like Crossroads, Oakwood Nursing Home, uh, the Oaks in Lewisport, uh, we're, all, we're doing special things for them. And, and you can see the people who are coordinating that in the bulletin. If you'd like to be a part of that, uh, please talk to one of them. Also, um, obviously, next week we'll start our Lottie Moon Christmas offering that we do every year. And just for those who don't know, that, that offering goes 100% of it directly to the International Mission Board, which uh, sends missionaries all over the world, and that's, uh, all of that goes, goes to them. We've set our goal this year for $2,000, and I just ask you to, to pray and to, to seek uh, the Lord's guidance as to what he would have you give to that. Um, the International Mission Board is, is the largest sending agency in, in the world of missionaries, they do an excellent job, and uh, those missionaries are sending the gospel all over the world and many places that have never heard the gospel. And uh, it's this time of year, especially that we as Christians ought to be thinking about giving. We, we rem- we're remembering that God gave us his only son, and I think we're called to emulate that in, in some way. We're thankful that we've received that gift, and, and true thankfulness, I think, would then want to give to others. And so those are just some opportunities for us to give uh, this year, so pray with me. Our heavenly Father, we come to you this morning. We do pray uh, that you would give us generous hearts. I pray that as we come to realize and understand the great gift that has been given to us in your Son Jesus Christ, and as we grow in adoration and in appreciation of what you have given to us, I, I, I pray that that weight—the weight of that—would would cause us to be generous givers. Lord, many of us sometimes think we don't have much to give. We feel like we've got too many bills, too many things that we need to save for, too many things that we need uh, in our lives. But God, as we just think about human history and we think about uh, people all over the world, we, we would be foolish to think that we don't have anything to give. We're the wealthiest people who have ever lived and uh, you've blessed us so greatly. Help us be those who see ourselves as, as as those who are to give to others as well help us as a church be generous givers and we pray that you would use this for your honor and your glory in Christ's name we pray amen
1: I'm not sure you all are out there good morning all right now now I'm preaching to somebody this morning if you have your bibles turn with me to the book of Ephesians we're going to be in chapter four we're going to look at uh, verses 26 27. Then verses 31 and 32. We're going to continue on in the series that uh, Andrew has been preaching here through Ephesians. Um, but today the topic is going to turn toward anger. That's the, the bulk of the text here, and we're going to, we're going to deal with that. So uh, if you have your Bibles and you're there, read along with me. Paul writes, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Now, drop down to verse 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for your word. It's clear, it is beautiful, and we need it this morning. So, God, what I ask is very simply that you would help me to preach your word and that you would apply it to our hearts, that we might be obedient, that we might receive the benefit and the blessing that you offer us in your word today. We ask it in Christ's name for his glory, for our good, and for your renown. Amen. So I want you to know right off the bat that anger itself isn't inherently sinful. In fact, probably over 300 times throughout the Old Testament, God expresses anger. And he's not afraid to say that he's angry. He's not afraid to take on that, that characteristic or that attribute. In fact, Isaiah thirteen nine says, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, cruel, with fury and burning anger, to make the land a desolation, and he will exterminate sinners from it. But notice in that passage, not only does it ascribe anger to God and wrath to God, and fury to God, but notice why God's angry, wrathful, and furious. It's because of sin. His righteousness, his anger rather, comes out of his righteousness. And so there is a right way, a righteous way to be angry. So Paul doesn't say here, don't ever be angry. And we shouldn't understand Paul to be saying, there's, we shouldn't understand it to be a command to be angry, where he's saying, you know, I command you to be angry, but rather it's more of a permissive statement. Rather, more of a permissive statement. Be angry and do not sin. It will happen. It will come upon us. Unlike God, though, sin has so thoroughly defiled us, so thoroughly uh, corrupted everything about us that what triggers our anger and how we express our anger causes it to be prone to sinfulness. So we're we can be like God, but we're often so unlike God in the way that our anger is expressed and we need to be aware of that. So very quickly, I want us to see that new life in Christ. And when I say that, what I mean is being born again, being converted, being saved, having your name written on the roll in heaven, not just on the roll in the church. uh, All of those things are what I mean by new life. And it's that, that new life, that born again experience, that conversion, your salvation, that breaks the dominion of sinful anger. We we can't express anger without sin prior to new new life in Christ. But because of new life in Christ, we can. We have the power to control that anger, and we have the power through Christ and, and the new life that he brings to subdue that anger. In fact, knowing that we're indwelled by the Holy Spirit, we should expect the Spirit of God within us to be conquering sinful attitudes and expressions of anger in our lives. Because sinful attitudes and sinful expressions of anger are contrary to the nature of God. So if we're saying at conversion, at new birth, when we're made righteous in Christ, we're given the Spirit of God to live within us, we should expect that Spirit of God within us to begin to change us so that we become more like Christ, more like God. I want us to see in verse 26 that Paul carefully fences all expressions of anger. He does that in two ways. First of all, in verse 26, he he fences sinful expressions of anger by forbidding that sinful expression. And secondly, he sets a brief time frame. So he says, be angry. It's allowable. You can at times have anger, but don't sin when you do. So there's, there's the first fence to kind of protect us. And then he says, and by the way, don't let the sun go down on your anger. He sets the time frame. He shortens it. And I don't know that that necessarily means that, because I feel like it's really kind of impossible given certain scenarios, to truly never go to sleep angry. There are some things about life and the time that they hit you and the, and the way that they progress that that you may, not, you may not actually ever be able to go to bed without being angry, but the idea here at least is that our, our anger should be short-lived. We should have an attitude and a willingness and a readiness. Our goal ought to be to put anger away as quickly as possible. And that, I think, is the overarching goal. <clears throat> if, we, if we go backwards in, in the, the, this epistle to verse 24, we see that one of the goals of our salvation... One of the, the goals of our sanctification as, as believers is to be created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. So, therefore, when Paul commands us to have short lived anger, when he says, Don't let the sun go down on that anger, it's because God's anger is short lived anger. God is not prone to, to carrying grudges, God is not prone to having an anger that lasts forever. In fact, Psalm 30 verse 5 says of God's anger, for his anger is but for a moment, and his favor is for a lifetime. You see how that fits with what Paul's already trying to tell us here. Maybe Paul had this in mind when he's instructing the Ephesian church about how to handle their own anger, and there's an echo in what Paul's saying to what what was said in the Psalms that God's anger is short-lived. It's his favor It's his his goodness, his kindness to us that lasts, that endures, that marks God. But he goes on to say, I think in a parallel statement, weeping may tarry for the night because of the anger of God, but joy comes in the morning. And so we see again this willingness in God to quickly put aside his anger and to quickly put aside the, the pain that that anger brings Offenses against God are infinitely more egregious than offenses against each of us. Yet God does not linger over his anger because he, wouldn't, he doesn't want to punish us unduly. He doesn't want to, to increase our suffering. And I think that's what we're seeing there in that psalm. Rather, he shortens it out of love. And Paul calls us to do the same thing. So yielding to new life in the Spirit means we will imitate God in how we handle our offenses. And ultimately what I'm saying here, if you don't hear anything else from this, this message, God must be Lord over your anger. You can take that away. That's the If you can't remember anything else little for the little ones in here, just commit that to memory. God must be Lord or Master, the one who controls our anger. We, everything we do, this is important for us to understand, everything we do in life is done before the face of God whether we like it or not. But everything we do is done before the face of God. Every outburst of anger, therefore, is done before the face of God. There's not a hiding place. He doesn't turn his back and say, you go ahead and have your fitful expression of anger and I'm not going to watch, I'm not going to see. Everything we do is before the face of God. Every thought we think, every attitude of our heart, every expression of anger, whatever other sin it might be, we need to be aware of that. God must be Lord over our lives including our anger one way sub- we submit our anger to God is to seek as Paul says to not let the sun go down on that anger and again that's not always possible but it establishes the principle of short-lived anger so we could ask the question at this point why is it so important to seek to put away anger quickly and we could answer it in part because that's what God does. And again, we're building a case that we're, we're created. Our, our new life is to make us in the likeness and image of God. It's to renew that image, and that's, that's part of it. But there's, there's some other practical reasons that Paul, I think, applies in this text when he gives this warning about anger. It's important to seek to put it away quickly because as Paul says in verse 27, lingering anger or prolonged anger... Quote, gives opportunity to the devil. Let that sink in for a minute. Your prolonged anger, you lingering over your anger, gives opportunity to the devil. Now, who wants to help him out this morning? None of us. But we've got a real practical application here. Paul says without any equivocation, that when I or you want to nurse our anger or hold on to our anger or stroke that anger or feed that anger or cherish that anger or refuse to set that anger aside, the only thing you're doing is giving the devil an opportunity. He doesn't put a positive on that, and we'll look at that a little bit more, but you give opportunity to the devil. So what does that mean, you give opportunity to the devil? Well, Proverbs 29:22 says, "A man of wrath stirs up strife, and one given to anger causes much transgression." So I think that kind of helps us see a little bit more what Paul's talking about. To give opportunity to the devil is to stir up strife. To give opportunity to the devil by by nursing our anger and holding on to our anger is to cause much transgression. Now, that's not what we think we're doing when we hold on to our anger. That's not the, the bill of goods that we're sold. That's not the lie that anger tells us whenever it, when, it, when it continues to whisper in our ear that we ought to hold on to it and nurse it and by golly, we're entitled to it. It doesn't tell us that. But this is a word from God. Who will we believe this morning? Will we believe the voice of anger, the temptation of Satan, Or will we believe the words of God who says point blank, your anger and your wrath stir up strife and your anger and your wrath cause much transgression because that's the word of God. That's the truth. No matter what you feel in your heart, no matter what you think, no matter how much control over that anger you feel like you have, if you're refusing to put it aside, if you're choosing to walk in it, you are stirring up strife you are causing much transgression. So first, allowing anger to follow us into the next day is a sure sign that it's taking root in our heart. So again, Paul put that, that length of time on there. And I don't want to be dogmatic and, 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 and wooden about that, that if you've stepped into tomorrow and you wake up and, you, and you, there's still some anger, that you know, you're just absolutely in sin, but it doesn't give us a whole lot of wiggle room it does at least indicate to us that if we're bringing our anger out of yesterday into today, then it's taking root in our heart. That's one of the first ways that we can test it and see how it's working and what it's doing, is if it continues to follow us around. So in an article entitled, Don't Go to Bed with Your Anger, Marshall Siegel describes how or why we carry anger into the future. Here's what he says. Quote, we passionately guard our anger because it brings us a pleasure we don't feel as quickly or as easily in humility or forgiveness. That's an honest statement. I think he's I think he's on the mark, but he goes on to say we ironically and tragically find comfort in our discomfort and peace in our internal chaos. But Jesus says, still quoting Siegler here or Siegel. Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. We desperately and irrationally chase healing in our anger, but we will find hell there instead." I think those are wise words from Mr. Siegel. We think think that we're going to heal ourselves by holding on to our anger. We perceive that there's benefit from clinging to that. And that's the lie. What Jesus says is that we'll find hell in our anger. And that's the scary thing about it. So, anger isn't, sinful anger isn't our friend. By warning us about anger, Paul's trying to prevent us from being enslaved and destroyed by anger's lies. He's exposing our sinful tendency to allow wrath to stir up strife and anger, to cause much transgression internally and externally." So Paul is on our side here. Paul's trying to help us out. But when you add to this Jesus sobering words, but if you don't forgive others their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses, or considering that Paul also places anger in a list of works of flesh of the flesh, saying that those who do such things, including expressions of anger, will not inherit the kingdom of God, that really, that really ups the ante. This is what's at stake here. Jesus says that, that, that anger can lead to the fires of hell. He tells us that if we can't forgive, which is just holding on to our anger and an, and an unwillingness to, to repent and follow God, that there's no forgiveness for us because we've never truly been changed. And then Paul says that the things that mark the works of the flesh of those who will not inherit heaven, anger is on that list. So tell me again, this is where I want to see the, the, the picture of Gene Wilder as Willy Wonka and that muse that he has and it says, tell me again how anger is your friend. You've seen the memes where you, he's out there on Facebook and it's, he's, he's always bewildered and he wants to hear, tell me again about such and such. Tell me again how anger works for you. Tell me again how it's serving you well. Tell me again how it's blessing you, how it's, how it's turning you to be more and more like Christ in the face of this testimony from God's word. So to modify a quote from John Owen, I'll say it this way. Be killing anger, or anger will be killing you. I think that's, that's the truth of this message, the truth of this passage of Scripture. But what makes unresolved anger so dangerous then? we well, want us to look again at verse 27. Unresolved anger leads to devilish behavior. Right? We've already seen that to, to, to not put our anger aside quickly gives opportunity to the devil. Well, the word devil means slanderer. It means false accuser. And when we harbor our anger, we basically just take up his work. We begin to slander others. We begin to falsely accuse others. And, it, and, and we don't think we are because it's true that they did something to make us mad. It's that we act like that's ultimate truth. Like that's unchanging truth. Like there's not another facet to their character besides that offense that they that they had against you or against me. So we begin to, holding on to a nugget of truth, we, we stretch it out so far that it's like what Andrew talked about in the message on, on being honest, that it becomes dishonest because it's an exaggeration. It goes well beyond the pale of truth. Yeah, they offended you, end of the story. That's not the only thing that they can do in life. That doesn't mark the totality of their character. And when we continue to, to harbor that anger, it's as if we're testifying against them to everyone we meet that that is all that they'll ever be, all that they can ever do, and they can't move past it, and you should be angry with me. So we begin to be a slanderer against people when we nurse our anger. That's the, that's the very definition of the term devil. So we open the door in our anger Our unresolved anger, our sinful anger to just walk with Satan. We're doing his work. We're about his business. That's not okay. That doesn't mark new life in Christ. That's the antithesis of what verse 24 says, that the new birth was given, the new creation, this new life was manifest in us so that we could be transformed into the likeness of Christ after righteousness and holiness. So we've got a real problem here. We can't go down that road and continue to walk down the road of sanctification at the same time. Now it doesn't mean, don't misunderstand me to be saying that if you struggle with anger, then you've never been saved, no. But if you refuse to put your anger aside, if you refuse to obey your Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, then He really isn't your Lord or your Savior. His sheep hear His voice. No strange voice will they follow his sheep find it easy to obey His commandments, and it's not a burden for them. And to take up unresolved anger and to walk in that is to walk in league with Satan, to slander, to accuse. It doesn't matter whether our anger is sinful or righteous in origin. Satan is always seeking an opportunity to use it. So there is a, there is a place, and hear me, there is a righteous kind of anger and God expresses only that kind of anger. And from time to time, we may express righteous anger, but understand that just because its origin was in righteousness doesn't mean that Satan is not seeking opportunity to twist that and to corrupt that and bring you into sin on the other side. Because you say, I started in righteous anger. It can't be, it can't be polluted or corrupted, but it can. Because the injunction is still, put it aside quickly. So if you fail to put aside righteous anger quickly, you can still err on the other side of the road. You can still be in a ditch. You can still be in sin. So it doesn't matter how it started or what it was about. It matters what we do with it, where we take it, how we respond after that anger arouses itself and awakens itself from within us. Satan seeks opportunity to either use use either one, righteous or unrighteous anger, for his advantage and for our downfall. Therefore, Paul again urgently admonishes us, give no opportunity to the devil. Not one, not a slight one, not a small one, none at all. Give him no opportunity. So how are we in danger of falling into the snare of anger? Well, I'll say one. I've got four, honestly. The first way that you'll be in danger of falling into the snare of anger is to just tune me out. Because I'm teaching and preaching through a text of Scripture where God is trying to say something to us And if you just choose to disassociate yourself from all the words coming out of my mouth, then you'll fall into the snare of anger because you refuse the instruction. Ignoring the danger from the text. Hearing me, you're plugged in, you're watching my mouth move, you're hearing the sounds that are coming out of my mouth, you're occasionally nodding your head, but you go away and you refuse to engage with this text and see the dangers in your life, you'll fall into the snares of danger or of anger. If you linger in your anger, if you nurse your anger. Those are four ways that I can think of that each one of us are in danger this very moment of falling into the snare of anger. We may be tempted to feel entitled by our hurt or our disillusionment or our disappointments that life has thrown our way or the discouragement of just all the things that have happened to us. After all, we've endured broken and painful relationships through life. We had struggles with sin or struggles with others Sometimes God just seems silent. We've been betrayed. We have unresolvable situations in our relationships that we can't escape from. And we begin to think that we have a right to be angry. I have a right to feel this way after all. You don't understand where I've been. You don't understand what I've gone through. And that's a deceptive thought. That is leading us down. It may be true that I don't understand where you've been or where where you're at right now. That part might be true. But when you conclude from that that, you ha- that you're entitled to your anger and just excuse yourself from this situation, brother, that's where you err. That's where I err. That's where you've crossed over into the deception of anger. And it's become sinful and a snare to us. If this is your reasoning, be warned. Sin is crouching at the door and its desire is for you. But you must master it. Perhaps you've been deceived by your anger, feeling like it makes you less vulnerable. Or perhaps you feel empowered by your anger. Well, consider God's word on these matters. Proverbs 16.32 says this, Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Sometimes we think that being angry is what makes us strong. This proverb tells us that that's a lie as well. Your anger isn't what protects you. Your anger isn't what shields you from hurts and slings. Your anger isn't what keeps you from being crushed or destroyed. In fact, again, let me me say it again. If you're slow to anger, you're better than the mighty. If you're slow to anger, you're better than one who, or rather, if you rule your spirit, if you, if you subdue that anger, you're better than one who can go in and storm a city and take it. Those are pictures of strength. We think those guys are macho. We watch movies about these people and, and we, we love it. It's awesome. We want to be those kinds of people. And yet God says in his word that it's not that that makes you strong. It's the ability to subdue and control your anger. Well, boy, we think that's weakness. We think when somebody's up in our grill giving us down the road that being tough is punching them in the face, throwing them to the ground, spitting on them and walking off, mess with me again. That's not tough, but that's, that's, that's what we perceive. And that's how I grew up living and, and believing. Like, I'll show you tough and one of us is going to be hurting when it's over. But the scriptures tell me that that's false. If I truly want to protect myself... Then I yield to God. I subdue my anger. I extend grace and forgiveness to others. That's what takes strength. That's what makes us like Christ who could be spat on and reviled and beaten and yet He didn't open His mouth. He didn't revile in return. He didn't punch anybody. He didn't kick anybody. He didn't hate anybody. That's the mark of manhood. That's the mark of righteousness so when we feel empowered by our anger, we're deceived by our anger. And I think that, sadly, many of us in this, in this congregation this morning, we have bought the lie that anger protects me, that anger is a shield around me, and those things are false. God is a shield about his people. He's the glory and the lifter of our head. And it's in him that we take refuge. He is the rock in which we hide ourselves, not anger. God's word is clear on this issue. The blessing of divine protection for your heart and your mind do not come through your angry aggression. Rather, the protection of your heart and your mind come through entrusting every offense and every provocation into the hands of your heavenly Father. So he says, Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against any of your people, but love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. And he says again, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If we truly believe those words, then we don't need to clothe ourselves in anger. If we take those words as promises to us, as God taking him at face value, then there's no room for us to have to, protect ourselves with a hardened angry attitude because God says I am the Lord I will repay I will enact justice I will be the one who disciplines or the one who judges trust in me anger can also be a symptom of unbelief it can be a sign that we have failed to trust all of God's word Ephesians 4:30 in Ephesians 4:31, Paul commands us to put away six expressions of anger. He says, "Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice." So let's just take a brief look at these six words: bitterness. And I I want you to recognize as we go how this goes from internal and maybe private to external and public. So we see a progression here. This is sort of a walk down the path, and you might be on one end or the other of the spectrum. But typically, this is a progress of 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 the way sin begins to harden and dominate. And we start on one end and typically end up on the other. So with bitterness, it, it describes someone who is sour and resentful. These are those people who brood over offenses and insults. I just can't believe they did that to me. I will never get over that. And they're just bitter and angry. And they may never say it to you, but that's the attitude of their heart. These kinds of people, bitter people, refuse to be reconciled. But do you see immediately how this is automatically disobedient to what we just read, uh, where God says, do not bear a grudge with any of your people? It's in direct contradiction to God's word. And so in that moment, we have two options. We can believe God's word, or we can believe the testimony of, lie, of the lie of sin within us, the lie of that anger. And so that's why I said a while ago that anger can be a symptom and a sign of unbelief. We're given options. Which one do we truly believe? It's the one that we live out. It's the one that we act on. So that's bitterness. Wrath is the next one. This is a sudden outburst of boiling anger. It's often characterized by heavy breathing. We would call this rage most of the time and some of us have been there. Some of us, That's our reaction for some of us when we start to get angry. We just feel it boiling on the inside and our breathing starts to change and sometimes the jaw starts to grit and the the, the Fists start to clench. This is wrath or rage building up within us. And then one that we would think was as as benign, it's the word anger there in this this group of words. This expresses itself in looks or words or actions that are meant to punish or antagonize others. So now we've been bitter, we've become wrathful, now it's beginning to vent itself. If it was was subdued at all before, it's not at this point. This is when I give you the, the, the stare down. This is when I'm communicating with my face or maybe communicating with my body posture, my location to your nose, that I'm angry or frustrated or whatever. This is beginning to break out of the confines of my heart and my mind and starting to affect those around me in really noticeable ways. Then there's clamor. Anger leads straight into this one. clamor is what you would, what you would see when two people are standing nose to nose, screaming and yelling at each other. I mean, they don't care who's watching, they don't care what effect it's having on the kids or the people in the restaurant or the pastor in the room, it doesn't matter. They are up in each other's faces and they're blah, 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 blah. That's clamor. They are all about it. It is very public and it's loud and argumentative. And so you'll see this word uh, translated brawling in some of your, your translations. But it's definitely hot and public. Then there's slander. It's the word blasphemia from which we get blasphemy. And this is detracting speech, and it can be aimed at God or aimed at others. It doesn't really matter, but it's designed to be. Like the point of this, its purpose is to be injurious to one's good name. So you've made me mad, I've brooded over it and been bitter, become angry. Now we've had it out, and now as a result of us having our little clamorous explosion there in public, I'm going to now slander you everywhere I go. Everybody's going to hear about what a nasty so-and-so you are because blasphemy or slander is now beginning to spill out of my mouth and out of my heart as I try to injure your good name the goal here is to harm you by ruining others estimation of you that's how this works through us and then the last one that he mentions here is malice this is ill will with desire to injure even if it requires breaking the law so this has gone even a step further so there's Yes, in a legal sense, there's a way that we can slander and be liable, but most of the slander that takes place isn't uh, legal slander that we're going to go to jail for. But malice is so depraved, so hardened, so affected by sin, so far away from obedience to God's word that it's willing to hurt you by breaking society's laws. If I have to knock you out, I'm going to. If I have to steal from you, I will. If I have to get a gun and shoot you, that's going to happen. All those kinds of things fall under this category of malice because I don't care now even about breaking the law. I care about hurting you. I care about dominating you. I care about inflicting pain on you. And malice enjoys the infliction of pain on others. And don't think that's not some of us today. Maybe we're not packing a gun and maybe we're never going to do anything that crazy. But sometimes don't we just love the fact that we've wounded somebody because they wounded us first. That is malice in our hearts. So this brief look at the six traits of anger shows us a downward spiral into sin and away from the glory of God. As anger enslaves enslaves us to do devilish work. So Paul commands us then, rightfully so, put these things away. We should not practice these kinds of things. Well, how do we do this, Paul? How do we do this, Pastor? How do we put these things away? How am I able to put away the characteristics of sinful anger? It's entrenched. I I grew up in this. It's, It's just part of who I am. Well, first we have to recognize that if you're in Christ, it's no longer a part of who you are. That's a dream in a sense that you've already woke up from. If you're in Christ, you are fundamentally identified differently than the moment before you were in Christ. You aren't truly anymore that angry person, and you do have an excuse. You do have a way out. You didn't before you were saved. All you could do was be a slave to your sin. And now in Christ, you are made capable to fight your sin. No temptation has seized you but what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear but will always provide a way of escape. That's true for believers. That's not true for you if you're not in Christ. You can't fight your temptations and win. You're going to fall and bow to them every time. But in Christ, because you're fundamentally a different creature, you do not have to live under the dominion of your anger even if it marked every single day of your life as far back as you can remember. You are now recreated, new in Christ. So put off the old self. And we saw through what Andrew's preached, that old putting off of the old self was already inaugurated in your justification. The moment you believe, the moment Christ plucked you out of the fires of hell, the moment he set you into the kingdom of righteousness and light, you were saved and the controlling power of sin was broken and you were no longer the same person. It's been inaugurated, though not consummated. Yes, they're still fighting with sin. Yes, they're still dominating sin that has to be broken. But now we have the ability to fight and to win. And this gets us to the crux of the matter. We cannot, in fact, we will not defeat sinful expressions of anger without new life in Jesus Christ. We must be born again to put aside anger We must be born again to put off the old self and to walk in the new. If you're tired of the way that sin dominates you, then maybe you need to put off the old self. Maybe for some of you, you're sitting here dominated by your sins because you have never repented and come to Christ. Others may be still wallowing in that, not understanding that your identity has changed. You no longer have to be that person if you're in Christ Secondly, we put away sinful anger by the power of the Holy Spirit. And I'm borrowing from verse 30 here that that teaches and tells us that we have the Spirit. And so I I just want to draw that out and simply say... It's not apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, and I'm not going to develop this real far and real full, but at conversion, you are indwelled by the Holy Spirit of God, and it's through his work that we begin to have desire changes. It's through his work that we begin to see victory over sin. So Philippians 2.13, for it is God at work in you. That's by the power of the Holy Spirit. What does that spirit do? Both to will and to work for God's good pleasure. The Spirit of God upon conversion indwells us and then changes our want to, our desires, our longings, our affections. He motivates us to pursue godliness and to fight sin. So what does the activity of the Spirit produce in our lives? Well, according to Galatians 5, and 23, the Spirit's work in our lives produces love and joy and peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This is the fruit, the evidence that we have the Spirit of God. It's not not in in charismatic gifts. It's not in in the ability to preach or the ability to teach. How do you know that you've got the Spirit of God? By those fruit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Those are the antithesis of the things that we're looking at with anger and clamor and bitterness and wrath and and, 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 uh, malice and all those things. These are the antithesis of that. Seeing this, though, that the, what the Spirit produces is this list of fruit, it fits nicely with the remainder of our text. After commanding us to put away the six traits of sinful anger, Paul tells us to go ahead and replace that anger with virtue. That's the third thing that we have to do here. He says in verse 32 be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So another inter- uh, potential interpretation there is learn to be kind. When Paul says be kind, there's a, there's a sense in which that's learn to be kind because it is a process for us, especially if we've lived our lives under the sway of sin, uh, of angry sin. We have to learn new habits, but we can learn those habits because of the power of the Spirit of God. So let me ask the question, and this echoes something Andrew's already preached, but I'm going to insert it again here. Why does it matter what we do after we've simply removed the traits of sinful anger? Paul says, put them all aside. And Why didn't he stop right there? Why wasn't that it? Just put them off. That's, That's fine. Just get rid of those, and you'll be good and okay. Way to go. Everything's cool. That's not what he says. Jesus illustrates the importance of not just putting off sinful traits, but as Paul says, take up virtue, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another. Because as Jesus taught in Matthew chapter 12, verses 43 through 45, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, That's just putting off those other things. Swept and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So it will be with this evil generation. So Jesus doesn't tell us, neither does Paul tell us, simply get rid of the bad. No, because he understands that we have an enemy who's always seeking opportunity. And just because you put it off for today doesn't mean the temptation won't be there tomorrow or a week from now or two years from now or when you least expect it. And what you put off, you never filled with anything else. And now there's an opportunity for it to come back because you've not put any positive righteousness in place of that negative sinful action or attitude. So Jesus warns and Paul warns then, it's not enough to just put it off. Stop doing that. He tells us to start doing something else. We live in a fallen world. Victory over sin is not static. It's not a one and done proposition. (laughs) Things are always changing and Satan is always seeking to devour you. He's always looking for opportunity to get back into your life. And if you don't put something in place of what Christ has set you free from, you have have a great potential to wind up in a worse condition than before. So he warns us, don't just put it aside, put on other things. Take on you something else. Fill that void With other things we must not simply cut out bad habits but by God's grace and it is by God's grace it's not simply our own doing it's by God's grace we must create new habits that are created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness a positive righteousness in place of the the sin God's not simply a being that is void of evil and if, if, if part of what's being done here is we're being created after his likeness, he's not just void of sin. He has positive righteousness. He has virtue. He has goodness about him. And so if we're being recreated after that likeness, it's not enough to just not be wicked. We have to be righteous. And not being wicked is, is, is or being righteous is more than just not being wicked. It's having virtue. And that virtue is brought about in our lives by the presence of God through the Holy Spirit. So, new life in Christ renews us to his image and therefore we must share in his righteousness and have fruit to show for it. We do this by putting on the new self, by yielding to the spirit-enabled work of sanctification. It's God's will that we replace sinful anger with kindness, tenderheartedness, and forgiveness by the help of the indwelling Spirit of God. But as sinful anger worsens in its expressions towards others, new life in Christ conversely softens us and reverses those sinful effects. So if we see the progression that goes from uh, bitterness all the way down to malice, and that's getting harder in sin, The opposite of that, once the spirit dominates our lives, is that we begin to soften and we we become more and more and more and more righteous and like Christ. It reverses those effects and makes us different than we were before. So kindness, as Paul says we should take on, is the opposite of malice. Instead of seeking the harm of others, kindness seeks their good. And this, expressing kindness, is obedience to God's word. It's the fruit of of faith in God's promises that he will avenge on our behalf, that he will defend, he will protect. So if I believe that's true, I have freedom to express kindness because my expression of kindness is not weakness. It's faith. It's trust. It's giving myself over to God. So if we stop short of expressions of kindness, we're still not walking in faith. We're simply maybe just behavior modifying. Just doing some behavior modification. Now we don't just put off bad things. We take on good things, and we can only do that by faith in the Word of God. Tenderheartedness, also flowing out of faith, is sharing in the deeply felt affection of Christ for others. It describes one who has has compassion and sympathy for those around them, including the ones who've offended us. So where sinful anger seeks to harm and destroy... New life in Christ displaces those evil desires and produces faith in God's word with strong desire to bless and help others. In living this way, instead of the trap of being used by the devil, we fulfill God's desires and not Satan's desires. We're yielded then as God's instruments of righteousness, ready to do his will. But notice Paul further exhorts us to forgive one another in a certain way, as God in Christ forgave you. That's a a big statement. And this is a huge step. It's a step of faith. It's a step of trust in God. It means that you must forgive others just as freely, generously, wholeheartedly, spontaneously, and eagerly as God in Christ forgave you. That's a tall order. But it can be done. And it is done in the life of His people through through faith in His Word and through reliance on the Holy Spirit. And forgiveness is the best evidence of faith in God's word concerning anger, because forgiveness is a total abandonment of oneself into the capable and faithful hands of God. So are you seeking to live this kind of life? Because this is basic Christianity. This isn't super-Christianity. If you, if you walk the aisle and make a profession of faith... You signed up for this and nothing less than this. This is basic Christianity taught to basic, simple people in the first century, many of whom couldn't read and write. And this was what was preached to those simple folks. This isn't right next to martyrdom. The next step up is to just die for the faith because we're so awesome. This is basic, entry-level Christianity. It's not some elite version. It's the only version that saves the soul. This is the only version that saves the soul. So I want to close with this. We need to remember that our sin, especially sinful anger, destroys us and others while it rips the church apart. Not only this, but it presents lies about God's character as we continue to live in ways that are inconsistent with who he is. We should also notice that living this way grieves the Holy Spirit of God. And I think that's an important thing to to emphasize, although it came in verses right before this. Our sin and our life of sin and the presence of sin in our life grieves the Spirit of God within us. And perhaps this is why some of us are unhappy with our religious experience. Perhaps it's why some of us, for some of us, our faith seems stale. Our Christianity seems to be gutted of all power and glory and beauty is because we've lived so often under the domination of sin that we've grieved the Spirit of God. The very thing that gr- the, the very person of the Trinity who affects power in our faith, power in our Christianity, if we're not careful, we're constantly offending and grieving. And so maybe the reason some of our version of Christianity is a dud is because we've never really walked in obedience and we just continue to grieve the one person who can bring effective change and power into that faith into that expression of Christianity. Perhaps your chronic disregard of this text has so grieved God's spirit that he's withdrawn the warmth of his presence. And as a result, you've lost your joy or your peace or the satisfaction that, these, that your faith once produced in your life. Well, you're not alone if that's you. Hymn writer William Cowper in his song, Oh, for a closer walk with God, wrote these words, and I close with them. Where is the blessedness I knew when I first saw the Lord? Where is the soul-refreshing view of Jesus and His Word? What peaceful hours I once enjoyed! How sweet their memory still, but they have left an aching void the world can never fill. Return, O holy dove, return! Sweet messenger of rest. I hate the sins that made thee mourn and drove thee from my breast. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We confess, God, that we are sinful, that we are often dominated and controlled by our anger. But I'm asking that by the help of your spirit and by the proclamation of your word that we would dedicate ourselves afresh and anew to put off the sin that so grieves your spirit, that so robs your church of power, that so uh, removes the joy of our salvation. And would you come again, O God? Would you come, O God, and forgive our sins, cleanse us of all unrighteousness, renew our desire to walk faithfully with you? We ask it in Christ's holy, precious, and glorious name.
0: Amen.